T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. Blast off into the potosphere with PGP nominal. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Making a return to the show is my partner in crime for the evening, John Berger. How you doing? Yes, the crazy Yankee has returned. Hello, sir. <laughs> it's uh, it's been it's been brilliant. We've we've been uh, getting a few hits on the on the last show, Good. and. Uh, it's amazing that uh, the amount of places that uh, are actually listening to the show. Um, we've got people in Estonia listening, in, so <laughs> I was quite surprised at that one. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. I thought we would kick off uh, with a rundown of things that have been happening in the space community since the last show. I'll start off with that um, after almost three years of waiting and six successful cargo flights to the International Space Station, um, SpaceX's Falcon 9 should finally win approval to launch NASA science satellites this year. SpaceX has been working towards NASA uh, certification since it won an $82 million contract in 2012 to launch the French-US Jason 3 Ocean Ultrometry Satellite on board Falcon 9. The rocket is getting closer to clinching NASA's formal seal of approval, but has not yet achieved NASA certification, said Jim Norman, Director of Launch Services at NASA HQ. Um, NASA rocket certification consists of three categories. The lowest is Category 1, the highest is Category 3. The higher the rocket's rating, the more valuable payloads NASA will entrust to it. Uh, rockets that have never flown must normally start at Category 1, as obvious, and work their way up to the certification ladder with successful launches. For over a decade, NASA has relied on using propulsion system changes as the most significant factor in declaring a unique configuration that requires uh, certification. SpaceX's launch of Deep Space Climate Observatory, or Discover, on the 11th of February did not need NASA certification because the $97 million launch was paid for by the Air Force, uh, which is in the midst of certifying Falcon 9 for high-value military launches. The roughly $200 million satellite originally built by NASA for Earth observations sat in a hangar for more than a decade before the National (laughs) Oceanic Oceanic and uh, Atmospheric Admission adopted it and turned it into a space weather satellite. (laughs) So it's it's good that they actually recycle things. Ah, government. It makes you wonder how many other things are there just been uh, mothballed (laughs) until something else Uh, comes along for it. Yeah, well, I could actually... I'm a contractor for the U.S. government right now, and I could tell stories, but I probably shouldn't. Uh, Not a good idea. (laughs) No. As I mentioned earlier, the the SpaceX uh, launch of the Deep Space Climate Observatory, or DISCOVER, took place on the 11th of February. This was supposed to be a double whammy of a mission because it was due to be the second attempt to recover this first stage of the Falcon 9 by landing it on the deck of the autonomous spaceport drone ship. The 
drone ship is designed to operate in all but the most of extreme weathers and unfortunately the weather in the Atlantic during the launch was really severe with waves reaching up to three stories in height crashing over the decks also only three of the drone drone ship's four engines were functioning which made the manoeuvre impossible to complete the rocket made a soft landing through the storm producing valuable data but didn't survive unfortunately so it's one of those things it actually landed on the platform how can you not consider that to be a win yeah but it would have been nice to actually see it it would have been nice but (laughs) you know it's better than if it completely missed its target yeah that this is true i mean we've seen so many times in the past where it's been absolutely nowhere near what they were supposed to but for the first proper attempt and actually hit it Yeah, I I agree with you 100% there, really. Five new planets have been found around Kepler-444, and it's what's interesting about this one is that the star is 11.2 billion years old. So that right there means it's almost three times older than our own solar system. And the uh, Kepler Space Telescope has actually found five planets that are orbiting around, and all of them are roughly the size of Venus, and they complete an orbit in less than 10 days. So, (laughs) they're really going around that thing. Um, It's quite fast. (laughs) Yeah, but you figure that's 11.2 billion years old, uh, and ours is only about 4.6 billion. But it's kind of cool the way it does it is that the telescope is so sensitive, it can notice these planets just by looking for very small changes in the brightness of the st- of uh, the star itself to determine whether there's a planet passing in front of it or not that's just that's just mind blowing when this tiny planet well relative position anyway but they they're sensitive enough that they can detect oh hey the sun dimmed a little bit there's a planet in front of it it's kind of like when uh, a ship uh, in star trek for example is in in cloak mode you got that kind of warp and right. it, it kind of does a similar kind of thing uh where something's just a little bit distorted and, yep. and, and and doesn't go with the regular pattern that's there and you think hmm something not quite right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much but uh, they said that um the smallest planet that they found so far is just slightly larger than Mercury, and they're they're estimating it to only be be about uh, like a hundred kilometers off the size of Mercury. You know, hundred hundred kilometers, give or take, on the size of it. But just the fact that we're able to figure this out, and uh, we're finding more planets out there, which every time I see something like this, or see one of those just magnificent pictures from the Hubble that shows oh, hundreds wow. of galaxies in a single frame. Yeah, I just, I, I just want to take the people who say that we're the only habitable planet in the universe and say, what is with you? The the, you know, pi- the this picture is amazing stuff uh, that I saw recently. Well, end of last year, I think, uh, from the Hubble was the from the Eagle Nebula. That was such a cool picture. Yeah, I, I used to have that as my um, uh, desktop wallpaper for a while because, considering it's just dust and gas. And it looks so solid. <laughs> yeah. That, that's just an amazing telescope. Um, it, well, it is now that they <laughs> they fixed it. <laughs> well, fair enough. Because <laughs> yeah. it, it was producing really good images, just now it's producing significantly better images. Yeah. <laughs> that was an amazing mission, that one, the uh, STS-125. Um, because uh, it was the only time they they had to, to do it because, you know, 
with the, the shuttle being decommissioned just yeah. after that, there there wouldn't be another opportunity to to do anything else with Hubble. So they had to make sure they did a good job of it, really. <laughs> and they did. Give them credit for that. Oh, yeah. It was a fantastic mission. The European Space Agency's prototype for a versatile mini space plane has successfully completed its first test flight, splashing down in the Pacific Ocean. The IXV space plane resembles a smaller, robotically controlled version of the US Space Shuttle and could provide Europe with a new reusable space transportation system. It blasted off on a Vega rocket from South America on the 11th of February and um, the test vehicle flew around the globe before splashing down into the Pacific Ocean. The wedge-shaped IXV, or the Intermediate Experimental Vehicle, is designed to gather information on how space objects fall back to Earth. Uh, Commenting on the launch, uh, ESA Director Joe General uh, Jean-Jacques Dordain uh, said it couldn't have gone better, but the mission itself is not over because now it is necessary to analyse all the data gathered during the flights. Flaps and, f- and thrusters controlled the trajectory, uh, ensuring that the IXV came down close to the um, recovery ship, some 3,000 kilometres west of the Galapagos Islands. A parachute system deployed in the very late stages of the flight and put the two-ton vehicle gently into the water. Flotation balloons came out to stop it from sinking. Europe's expertise on re-entry technologies is more limited, say, to the US or Russia's, and it's something that it wants to change, and it will do with the help of the IXV. ESA's project manager, uh, Giorgio Tomino, told BBC News, Europe is excellent at going into orbit. We have all our launches, for example, but we're a bit behind in the knowledge of how to come back from orbit. Um, <laughs> so, well, on the other hand, I mean, you guys landed on a comet, for crying out loud. <laughs> You know, let NASA handle the Earth ones, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So if we were to close the circle, go to orbit, stay in orbit, come back from orbit, we need to master the third leg, as well as other (laughs) spacefaring nations. (laughs) (laughs) They did make a couple of references, obviously one to Philae, and they did actually give a nice little nod to um, Beagle 2 as well, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really nice ESA has already approved a follow-on spacecraft which is called Pride and it looks very similar in design to the X-37B mini shuttle uh, which is being operated by the American military however the uh, the X-37B is is a classified program so no one's quite sure what missions are flown by this unmanned craft <laughs> that was very because uh, it was up there for was it two years or something something like that yeah And it just appeared out of nowhere, and the press seemed to know when it was coming back to Earth, because there was cameras everywhere, but um, nobody knew anything about it. It was really weird. Oh, that's that's the government. (laughs) You know, that's just what they do. Just trying to protect us for crying out loud. Don't you realize that? I don't don't know. I I think they were just having a bit of a play to be honest with you it's, it's kind of like one of these little drone things <laughs> and it's like let's, let's, let's have a let's have a play <laughs> multiple images taken of Pluto and Charon each taken about a day apart but it's really cool that when you put the two of them together it's not like our kind of orbit where we just have the earth and then the moon just orbits around they both kind of orbit around each other 
they, they've got a little bit of a wobble to it. So if you wanted to put like the, the center of their rotation around each other, it doesn't focus on Pluto. It focuses a little bit off the surface so that you can actually see this wobble between the two uh, simply because there's kind of similar in size. They're really not too different between each other and their gravity affects each other. So instead of just Charon orbiting around Pluto, they both got a, a little bit off. It's actually really neat to see. We've got a GIF of it um, actually on the show notes. So if, if, if you want to go and have a look at it, it's, it's kind of therapeutic actually to sit there and watch it. It's, uh, it's kind of strange, but yeah, you expect that. Why everything should be the same as what we have in our orbit and, and uh, the, the connection that we have with our moon, why should it be the same? thought it said that Charon's only like one-sixth the size of Pluto and then the fact that they're so close to each other that uh, that that's pretty much what does I, you know I don't know why I'm so excited about this thing getting to Pluto maybe just because it's something we've you know we've seen the other planets they're big enough that we can kind of see them with uh, you know telescopes and so forth but Pluto's just this little rock out there and and we're actually sending something right to it I'm hoping really cool I'm hoping that they'll discover something that might put Pluto back in the limelight again because I was like <laughs> I don't know when it got demoted I was a bit upset really yeah uh, <laughs> I've always well, you know, I'll, grown up with it I can't it. remember the name of it I wish I could um, but I don't know have you ever played with uh, Google Cardboard I've seen it in action I haven't actually had a go with it myself yeah, I mean, for, for those of you who don't know, Google Cardboard is, you know, you, you can download the plans and everything. You have to buy some lenses for it, but it's basically a virtual reality headset that you can make out of cardboard or whatever, and it turns your phone into a VR headset. But uh, let me see if I can find it here, because I was just playing with it. They just updated the app, like, last week, and now a whole bunch of things are available for it, uh, including... See this? I want to find it. There it is. Uh, just so I can get the name of it. Uh, it's called Titans of Space, and you know it's obviously meant to be virtual reality, so it'll be in 3D. But what it does is it's a virtual reality. It's like you're sitting in this seat in space, this this rocket ship in space, and it will go to each of the planets and the sun and so forth and just give you some information about it and you can look around you know because it's virtual reality so you got the you're looking at your phone through it and you're looking around and you're seeing all the different moons and it will give you different specifications on the moons different facts and there were actually i didn't even know that there were some planetary bodies between like us and jupiter that could be considered you know uh protoplanets if you want to call them that yeah i was just like that's that's actually very cool. And then they said that, oh, yeah, Pluto's actually got like five or six moons. I was like, what? <laughs> really? When? How did I not know this? Well, when you, you know, look it's at... It's just uh, really cool. Saturn's got quite a few, hasn't it? Um, yeah. I think it's got about 20-something <laughs> altogether. <laughs> and yeah, some of that, like I that. only thought it had, a, you know, two or three. And then these names came from somewhere like, well, so obviously somebody's discovered them mm -hmm. um, and it's just strange that all these different moons that uh, other planets have got but yeah I mean it's called Titans of Space and if you want it, it, Google Cardboard you might have to buy maybe $20 American in parts because you have to buy the lenses and so forth but and then some magnets for it but it's actually really cool to play with I, well I love 3D anyway 
but then the Titans of Space just to float around the solar system in 3D and it's just like you're sitting in a chair in space so, uh, and, and so you're just cool. going to each, each planet of the solar system and it's actually really cool to play with I definitely recommend it if anybody wants to play with cardboard Companies like SpaceX and Orbital ATK, or formerly Orbital Sciences, will soon have big competition when it comes to putting satellites into space. Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic has just completed a deal to build a facility for the design and manufacturing of Launcher One, a two-stage orbital launching vehicle that can carry satellites weighing up to 500 pounds. The 150,000 square foot facility will be built at Long Beach Airport uh, in a spot formerly occupied by Boeing. There is at least one mission already on the books for Launcher One. A company called OneWeb is trying to create a satellite-based internet by launching a network of 648 satellites Holy cow. into orbit. Wow! <laughs> I'm sure that's going to cause a bit of problem with launching other stuff. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Depending on how high they put those satellites up there. Instead of using launch pads like SpaceX, um, Launcher One is designed to be released mid- mid-flight from Virgin's White Knight 2 aircraft. Orbital's Pegasus 1 rocket works in a similar way, but is designed to carry heavier satellites and is working on a Pegasus 2 project that echoes Virgin's current setup. Virgin Galactic claims that this method allows it to offer a launch price that could be the lowest in the world. Branson told CNBC that the Launcher 1 and White Knight 2 combination could allow the company to literally take off uh, every three or four hours. For comparison, SpaceX performs <laughs> launches bi-monthly at best. Now that just sounds amazing that they'd be able to launch these things every three or four hours. Well, I mean, if, if it can be done just by attaching to the bottom of an aircraft, yeah, why not? I mean, that would be the way to get 648 satellites yeah, really? into orbit every three or four hours, yeah. yeah. No problem, <laughs> folks, will be done by the end of the month. <laughs> um, White Knight 2 is the same aircraft that Virgin Galactic uses to launch Spaceship 2, the company's crewed vehicle. The company has been testing that in the hopes of eventually offering commercial space flight to the masses in the next few years. But the fatal test flight accident last autumn has stalled the timeline. Uh, mm. rather unfortunate situation yeah. um, you can still donate to the memorial fund that was set up for the family of Mike Osbury the test pilot and project engineer that died during the Virgin Galactic test flight to donate click on the forward together logo on our mission control page and it will link you to the memorial fund myself and all the TGP nominal crew would like to send our condolences to Mike's family. Absolutely. This one involves uh, looking up in the sky and seeing a smiley face out in space. I'm not talking about the man on the moon, uh, but an actual smiley face courtesy of gravity. Uh, what happened was, uh, while, while the Hubble was looking at galaxy cluster, get ready for this, SDSS J1038 plus 4849. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't understand that one. But nonetheless, they took a photo of that area, and it actually seems to be smiling, complete with two eyes, a little button nose, a smile, and the outline of a head. It kind of looked to me like somebody dressed their coffee cup on there, you know? It, it <laughs> <laughs> you know, or someone's just saying, I see you. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but uh, actually what happened is that because gravity can bend light, that's what's happening here. It just happens that there's a heavy uh, gravitational body directly in line between Hubble and what it was looking at, and that gravitational field was actually bending the light, uh, which is exactly what you know, Einstein's general theory of relativity says can happen, and it actually just looks like a uh, smiley face in space. It's actually kind of cute to look at. It is, yeah, and um, once again, you'll be able to see that in the show notes. Never before has a comet been seen in such extraordinary detail or studied more closely. And now the next stage of the Rosetta mission is underway. The spacecraft is no longer orbiting Comet 67P Turium of Gerasimenko because of its activity. Instead, it's performing flybys, and one brought Rosetta to its closest ever encounter, just six kilometers from the surface. What we will be doing will be alternating far flybys, so maybe 50 kilometers or so with relatively low speed, with close flybys with higher speed. And with this uh, different flight condition, we will hope to be able to explore completely the environment of the comet. The Rosetta Orbiter's manoeuvres are controlled here at the Planetary Missions Control Room in ESA's European Space Operations Centre at Darmstadt in Germany. We already know a lot about the comet, including the exact signature of hydrogen present in its water, which indicated it was not the same as water on Earth. The flybys allow Rosetta to continue taking measurements up close, with the aim of further understanding the surface of the comet nucleus, the exact types of organic material on the comet, and, by studying how different wavelength light reflects from the surface, the dust grains. Insight will also be gained about the comet's atmosphere or coma. We're looking at where the gas and the dust start to accelerate from the surface and how that beginning of the coma, that birth of the coma works, so how the, the coma develops as it does to, to higher altitudes. This region has only ever been theoretically constrained or modelled. These will be the first measurements we make in, in this area or this region and that's, that's a really big important target for us. During the next few months, Rosetta will examine how the nucleus activity increases to a maximum shortly after perihelion in August, its closest distance to the Sun. Rosetta will then measure how the activity wanes to give the fullest picture yet of a comet's activity cycle. Even the unexpected series of bounces after Philae's descent and landing in November had a positive side, as uniquely they gave scientists multiple points of data from different parts of the comet's surface. Philae is currently in hibernation, its whereabouts unknown. But we know from this image that Philae is in the shadow of what resembles a cliff or rocky overhang. As the comet gets closer to the sun, there's a slim chance its solar panels could gain enough power to reactivate. Having Philae reactivated is uh, not so likely, but it's not impossible. Philae was designed to hibernate, was designed to, to switch off and be able to reactivate itself. Of course, we expected this to be a duration of a few days or a few weeks, not a few months, but okay, we will see. Maybe we are lucky and, and the, the, the units have survived these this months and we reactivate in June, July. Future flybys will try to pinpoint the lander's exact location, but this year the science focus is all about the orbiter. The flybys, to a month at distances from the comet ranging from 15 to 250 kilometers, will allow the nucleus to be studied at different resolutions. 
Rosetta will also be able to observe how the coma interacts with the solar wind. So far, Rosetta has only mapped about 70% of the surface because the comet's orbit and rotation kept certain areas in darkness. This year, new regions will come into view alongside new activity on the surface. And in the summer, the orbiter will be in a unique position. The comet will be at the peak of its activity and Rosetta will have a ringside seat. Now, in that clip, you heard Rosetta flight director Andrea Accomazzo and uh, Rosetta project scientist Matt Taylor, no relation, who famously, during the Philae 67P comet landing, described Rosetta as sexy but not easy. <laughs> he's, a, he's an amazing guy, he really is. He's the, the one that was wearing the really loud shirts. Oh, uh, that one, okay. Yeah. The, um, the one that caused a little bit of a stir? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. just a little bit <laughs> he's also got uh, a tattoo on his leg uh, he's got two he's got one of rosetta and one of isa on his other leg so he's he's very committed to the cause <laughs> yeah that, that's dedication <laughs> yeah that, that is quite amazing that at that point rosetta was six kilometers from the surface yeah. and was taking those photographs i, I still think we we can learn a lot more uh, from that situation and as I say with a bit of luck Philae may wake up well we just have to wait and see but I, yeah I really don't think that that's finished yet there's a, a lot more to learn yeah I mean even if Philae doesn't t- doesn't come back on at least the orbiter that that can get so much data Lander the comet that is so cool <laughs> <laughs> that's just one of those things where it's like I never ever thought I would hear those words in my lifetime landed <laughs> on a comet I remember when was it in the mid 80s when um, Halley's comet did its fly past and it was amazing just to see oh you, you won't see anything like this for another 200 years or whatever it was and now we're landing on them yeah <laughs> That's amazing. Like the the only the only real sad thing is that who knows how long it'll be before we get another opportunity for that. Yeah, there's plenty of um, plenty of them out there, but it's you know it, it took 25 years to get this far. Yep. Um, so it'll it'll be another 25 to 30 years at least because they well, they haven't even come up with a plan for another mission like it but who knows i mean it's landing on asteroids next i guess (laughs) god knows we have enough of those to choose from oh yeah and some of them get quite close too (laughs) well yeah (laughs) spacex falcon 9 launched uh, another craft on the 1st of march uh, which was yesterday providing another milestone for spacex with the first dual payload for the falcon 9 on board the rocket was the utelsat 115 west b and the abs 3a communication satellites The UTELSAT 115 West B will provide the Americas with video, data, government and mobile services for a Paris-based UTELSAT and the ABS-83A will distribute television programming, internet and mobile phone connectivity and maritime services across the Americas, Europe, Africa and the Middle East for Asia Broadcast Satellite of Bermuda and Hong Kong. Built by Boeing, these satellites were the first space craft to launch in a conjoined configuration 
and are the first payloads to use an all-electric propulsion system for orbit raising. This was another mission that didn't involve the second attempt to land the first stage of the Falcon 9 on the autonomous spaceport drone ship. Due to the demands of getting these two satellites into space, there wasn't enough spare propellant on board the Falcon 9's core stage to attempt to land. Therefore, this Falcon 9 wasn't even fitted with legs or stabilising fins. We'll have to wait until the 8th of April for the CRS resupplies mission to the ISS for the next attempt to land the first stage. But that's, that was quite an interesting launch because of the, the way that, the, that it was conjoined. Yeah. There could have been a problem uh, with the deployment of the satellites where they could have become entwined and, well, not done anything, to be honest. Right. <laughs> so that that's... Uh, why we were hanging on for so long waiting for the first satellite to be deployed and once that was out of the way um, we then knew that the second satellite was safe to be deployed so um, yeah it's another feather in the cap for for SpaceX they just seem to everything they do (laughs) it just seems to work well, you know, when when since they're a private company, they don't have the whole government oversight that NASA has, you know, and, and they don't necessarily have the, uh, shall we say, government managerial attitude that NASA had. You know, they, they know that they've got to make things work, whereas NASA was kind of like, whatever, we can just get Congress to give us more money. You know, <laughs> Let's face it, that's really what it kind of came down to. And uh, SpaceX is just like, no. And plus with Elon Musk, I mean, he just he just keeps going. That yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, he's just full of ideas all the time. <laughs> NASA is suiting up, getting ready to send humans on a journey to Mars. To do it right, the spacesuit must be tough, shielding the astronaut from dust, heat, cold, radiation. It must be sophisticated, providing air, power, communications. The spacesuit must be flexible, allowing the human body the freedom to explore as only humans can. We have 50 years of experience suiting up, sending humans out of the spacecraft in what NASA calls extravehicular activity. We have walked in space and proved there was a universe of possibilities that awaited us. We have shown that with a spacesuit, human hands can repair, save, and build things in space. With spacesuits, we even explored the moon, opening new frontiers and expanding our knowledge. And as NASA prepares to travel further into the solar system, a new generation of spacesuits will help us make future discoveries. Suit up with us and explore this NASA website celebrating 50 years of extravehicular activity. Now, did you recognize the voice there, John? No, I didn't, actually. I believe it was Buzz Aldrin. That wouldn't surprise me. Now, the the website that he was talking about there, there, there are links to that on the show notes. During February, three EVAs kicked off the 50th anniversary of spacewalking. 
On the 21st of February, NASA astronauts Barry Wilmore and Terry Virts rigged a series of power and data cables at the forward end of the Harmony module and pressurised mating adapter 2 and routed 340 of 360 feet of cable. The cable routing work, or routing as you might say, um, is, <laughs> is part of a reconfiguration of station systems and modules to accommodate the delivery of the new docking adapters uh, that commercial crew vehicles will later use to deliver astronauts to the orbiting laboratory. On the 25th of February, Wilmore and Verts completed rigging a series of power cables on the pressurised mating adapter 2, lubricated the latching end of the space station's Canada Arm 2 robotic arm, and prepared the Tranquility module for the station's upcoming reconfiguration in preparing for the arrival of the commercial crew vehicles later this decade. They were also able to complete some preparation work for the 1st of March is installation of the Common Communications for Visiting Vehicles, or C2V2, systems by pre-staging wire ties that will be used in the EVA. What would they do without cable ties? Did you see the uh, did you see the picture that Butch Wilmore took when he was on one of those spacewalks where he, he, he took a selfie? Yeah. Just they took a camera into space and he just decided, oh, you know, I'm in the middle of cabling this, cabling the ISS and so forth. I'll just take a picture. Why not? Why not? <laughs> um, like that's, oh, and as far as the uh, pronunciation is concerned, as far as I'm concerned, you can say rooting, because <laughs> the way we pronounce route over here drives me nuts. <laughs> there is an E at the end of that word. E's mean that the vowels are supposed to be long. So it's supposed to be root, not route. So, uh, you know, pet peeve here. Maybe that's just my uh, anglophilia kicking in, too. <laughs> um. Also during that spacewalk, Terry Verts reported seeing a small amount of water floating free in his helmet during the airlock repressurization at the conclusion of the spacewalk. There was no report of water during the spacewalk itself and the crew was never in any danger. After removing the helmet, Expedition crew member Samantha Cristoforetti reported on the free floating water inside the helmet and indicated that the helmet abs- absorption pad was damp, indicating seepage through the helmet air duct. Verts was wearing the same spacesuit, number 3005, uh, during that spacewalk, and it's the same suit that Italian astronaut Luca Parmitano endured a water leak that forced him to make a quick retreat to safety of the airlock in 2013. That leak was blamed on a clogged filter inside the suit's water cooling system. I don't know if you were aware of that story, John. Basically, he had a quite a big globule of water that covered his nose and mouth, and he nearly drowned inside his spacesuit. Ooh, I mean, I've heard of, of like condensation inside the suit, uh, you know, like the visor and so forth, but I didn't hear that one. Yeah, yeah it's a problem. Quite a, a major problem, but because he kept so cool and calm it saved him from actually drowning um if he'd have panicked um he probably wouldn't be with us uh yeah Uh, but in vert's case the water intrusion occurred after the spacesuit had been reconnected to the station's umbilical and after the airlock uh, repressurization had begun. As it turns out, the same spacer experienced sem- similar incidents after seven previous spacewalks, 
the result the result of condensation in the suit's cooling system after the airlock repressurization. Uh, when you connect uh, to an umbilical, you have a lot of cold air that's going past the cooling system of the suit, and the air is often going to condense, said uh, Alex Kanilakos, uh, a, a NASA spacewalk officer. And we have a high-density gas that's flowing past this condensed water that can often move the water about over the crew member's helmet. This spacer is known to have what we call carryover water, he said. Uh, with seven other occurrences of this carryover on the spacesuit, it's not expected every time, but it is a known feature. That's why we monitor the perimeters on the ground. We're continually getting data and we're watching to see if we're having any occurrences of this situation or the situation that Luca had. Um, and they're very, very different occurrences. Well, that, that's putting a positive spin on it, calling it a feature. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> that sounds very Microsofty in there. And uh, A feature normally... Uh, corresponds to something that is supposed to happen you know it's yeah. <laughs> a feature is something that you you want to happen <laughs> speaking to a reporter vert said i'm completely confident that i'm not going outside unless we've got a good suit to use <laughs> i don't doubt that i mean they wouldn't want to take that risk but yeah feature okay <laughs> on the the first of march uh verts and wilmore spent five hours and 38 minutes installing 400 feet of cable and several antennas associated with the common communications for visiting vehicles known as c2v2 the boeing's crew transportation system the cst 100 and the spacex crew dragon will use the system to uh, in the coming years to rendezvous with the orbital laboratory and deliver crews to the space station the space walk was the third for Verts and the fourth for Wilmore Verts has now spent 19 hours and 2 minutes outside during three spacewalks and Wilmore has now spent 25 hours and 36 minutes in the void of space during his four excursions. Mm. Crews have now spent a total of 1,171 hours and 29 minutes conducting space station assembly and maintenance during 187 spacewalks. That is amazing. That's over. That is absolutely amazing. 15 years, I think, uh, that I've been doing it. But yeah, that's a lot of hours in space. The next one, um, I was quite disturbed about, actually, when I read this for the first time. A statement posted to the Russian Space Agency's website said a meeting of, of Rosmakos Science and Technical Council considers Russia's future favouring the continued use of the International Space Station until 2024. Then Russia plans to remove all its modules from the International Space Station to form an all-Russian complex in orbit. The statement said a configuration of multi-purpose laboratory modules, a docking node module and a scientific power module creates a promise Russian space station to meet the challenges of providing a secure access to space for Russia. Russia's participation in the space station program beyond 2020 has been in doubt since the government officials said they were reviewing whether or not to drop out of the global partnership in the wake of Western sanctions against Russia, which were prompted by the country's annexation of Crimea in March 2014. 
Russian officials are still finalizing other objectives for its space program from 2016 to 2025 as Russian industry begins consolidating into government-owned enterprise. A move the country's leadership says will raise worker wages and improve reliability. Western sanctions against Russia erected hurdles in the path of what was expected to be a smooth decision in favour of extending the country's use of the 450-ton orbital laboratory, according to Alexei Krasnov, um, head of the human spaceflight programs at Rosmokos. Krasnov told reporters in July that Rosmokos had submitted a proposal in early 2014 matching NASA's decision to extend support and international base station from 2020 to 2024, but he said the outcome of the deliberations would be tinted by developments in Ukraine and, and US's response to the conflict there. The Obama administration announced in January 2014 it backed keeping the International Space Station operating until at least 2024 with the possibility to extend the mission to 2028, the 30th anniversary of the launch of the Outpost's first module. Uh, what is there to say to that? It's just petty crap. You know, yeah. Even during the Cold War, we still cooperated on, on a lot of things like that. You know, and even the cosmonauts and the astronauts have said, you know, this transcends whatever politics are going on on the ground. That's just sad. And when it said about the consolidating the... Um, different things to make a uh, a government owned thing sounds like communism's coming back into play again oh that yeah that's that's been going on for a while now whether that's good or not for them that's obviously we're kind of biased over here in the west but i don't know i just of all the things that are going on it would be nice if the space program could still kind of be independent from everything else that's going on but apparently russia doesn't want that i was looking at the actual the different parts of the space station recently after reading this and the bits that they've got in the russian section they have pretty much got what they need the other parts we'd need to send other bits up there to make it viable to have that space station running without the russian section if it does end up that that's going to happen we do have spacex uh, it'd be kind of cool if ESA got involved with, you know, a bit more. It would be sad to have two separate space stations, but, you know, with what has been going on lately, you know, and of course, you know, Richard Branson with with uh, his announcements and so forth. I mean, we do have the ability to get stuff up there if Russia does pull out. Yeah, I, I think with the commercial sector now, there is the ability to, to do that. But I really believe now, after hearing that, I think... A new space race has started. Yeah, unfortunately, and I just, I don't know, I I just think it's petty, but what can you do? We want to send submarines to Titan. Titan is primarily a liquid methane. That's that's what its oceans are made out of. And we actually have a lot of data on Titan. We've got a lot of uh, images already. Uh, We've already landed a probe on on Titan back in 2005. There was the Huygens probe. Uh, But now, because of all the methane, really the oceans on Titan are what we really don't know much about and now they're looking at sending a submarine up there to take care of all of that this was announced at the nasa innovative advanced or i guess you guys say innovative uh, (laughs) advanced concepts 2015 symposium and that's kind of like where a bunch of ideas come together and those that are credible could start to be funded to see what's going you know to see what can be done and uh, so what this is supposed to be is a submarine that can not only go under the water, but also can do its own probing while it's up at the surface. 
and uh, they're not sure yet if the design is going to be transmitting information directly back to Earth or to another probe in orbit, which will send it back. But uh, that's that's what they're looking at doing. So uh, this was uh, designed by the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland, uh, as well as submarine designers from the Applied Research Laboratory at uh, my alma mater, Penn State University. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what they're basically that, that is what they're doing it's just a submarine that they plan to send up there so right now they're, they're looking at uh, if money is provided they're going to look at a kind of delivery delivery system to you know well get it into the oceans that would be kind of nice to do that but the real big benefit to it is obviously we'll have newer instruments because you know, the probe that landed there first was 2005 we have a lot of high-res images from above but we don't really have as much on you know what's going on on the surface or down below and that's what this is supposed to take care of. So they actually already have a blueprint for the ballast system that would allow the sub to dive and resurface and so forth. And like I said, they're not sure exactly how they're going to handle transmitting that data back to Earth right now. But, you know, it looks like we're sending another probe to yet, well, I don't want to say planet. I guess, well, I guess, yeah, another moon anyway. Yeah. So another celestial body, let's put it that way. There's a Space Age Captain Nemo thing going on. (laughs) And you know what? Looking at the plan that they have for it, you can kind of see where there's a similarity to it. it right. It's definitely more boxy, the design that they have. But when I first looked at it, I was kind of reminded of that. <laughs> <laughs> it actually does look a little bit like it. Awesome. Um, yeah, there's a lot to be learned there because we, we've got a lot to learn about our own planet with, with the water and the seas mm. and everything else and the likes of James Cameron is um, dealing with that kind of stuff because he's put a yeah. lot of money into that yeah it's, it's, we could probably learn a lot about our own planet strangely from being up on Titan yeah really because right now the those methane seas are really the only thing that we don't know about uh, in any detail so uh, you know, they want the sub to do, you know, as well as surface atmospheric stuff, they want to be able to do, I guess, sonar to map the bottom of Titan. And uh, I just, it's just neat to see that they're trying to do that sort of thing. It'd be interesting. I, I doubt if there would be anything living in uh, a methane um, ocean, but it'd be interesting to see if anything could survive it. Oh, you know, I mean, they found life here that is based on arsenic. This is true, so, yeah. You never know. A company, well, Sierra Nevada, uh, they're looking to make a uh, ship called the Dream Chaser, which is uh, basically a reincarnation of the space shuttle. Now, it's, it's a much smaller version, and it will actually be on top of a rocket as opposed to just strapped on the back of one. But, I mean, it's, it basically does look like a stubby little space shuttle. Yeah. So they're hoping to be able to do something by 2017. They expect it to launch at the, uh, from the top of an Atlas V rocket and then land on a runway just like the space shuttle did. So they want to have a a flight ready by November 2016. Uh, NASA has already provided money to the company. So, you know, we'll see what goes on with that one. So, I mean, although it's based on the space shuttle, it's actually based on a Soviet design called the Bohr 4. But then again, that was kind of ripped off from the space shuttle. So, you know, either way, they're just trying to bring the space shuttle back. Now, again, it's much smaller. It's not going to be able to do at nearly as much as the original space shuttle did but still you know it's going to be a reusable vehicle according to the the image that they have the diagram it's going to be at the top of a uh, of an atlas rocket you know up near the tip as opposed to closer to the backside. 
So uh, they did do a single glide test back in 2013. It was re released from a helicopter uh, and landed on a runway, although it didn't completely land successfully. But, uh, you, know, uh, you know, like the rocket landing on the uh, platform out in the ocean, uh, that's a problem, but, you know, learn from it and, uh, and get yourself all, you know, make, make all the fixes you need to make. There was a little bit of a problem with NASA because uh, NASA gave the commercial crew transportation capability, as they call it, that's their program, to the SpaceX Dragon and the Boeing CST-100. They kind of left Sierra Nevada out of it, and Sierra Nevada got a little bit upset and filed a lawsuit with the U.S.'s General Accountability Office, who unfortunately ruled against Sierra Nevada. So even though they've received NASA funding to try to develop this, it looks like NASA, for whatever reason, isn't really doing anything with them. So uh, unfortunately, it means that they're going to have to look for other customers to fulfill any contracts that are used by this. But uh, you know, they, they expect to have a second glide test done this year. Uh, they don't have a date yet. So it's not the space shuttle, but something like the space shuttle might be returning. You see, the, the good thing about it, as you say, it's uh, launched on the, on the top of a rocket rather than strapped yeah. uh, to it, which makes it safer in many respects. Yeah. Also... Well, I mean, we figured we lost the Columbia because it was on the, the lower part of the external tank, and that piece broke away and smacked into the wing. That's right. So if it was up higher, we might, we might never have lost the Columbia. That's right. And the other thing is that um, things get a little bit complicated when you try and combine cargo and crew. Mm -hmm. If you separate them and have them on two separate rockets, uh, it makes it a lot easier. So therefore, wh where this is comes into its own is that it is it is solely for crew uh, right. rather than rather than cargo. Although they probably could make a cargo version of it. Probably could. I've been looking at the Dream Chaser for quite a while now, and I, I've also always thought that, that it looks a little bit like what the space shuttle would look like if it was designed by Disney. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little um, bit cutesy. <laughs> well, yeah, I never thought of it from that perspective, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, and, and then I remembered back to when I was a kid that Disney actually designed a space shuttle called Stardust for this movie... Blast off! And blast it off! With the Spaceman and King Arthur! We have lift off. He looks so handsome. He's a somewhat different genius who builds a robot that looks like himself. Too much like himself. All right, Hermes, that's enough. Hermes, put the girl down. He's a wrong way astronaut. You've got to get us down! Who forgets to get off the spaceship and rockets back in time from Houston to merry old England. You little wrench around here. Camelot will never be the same. I got some LPs in there you probably haven't heard. Thanks anyway. He's a knight in shining armor. Creating chaos in Camelot. And he's coming soon. Walt Disney Productions, The Spaceman and King Arthur. Now, The Spaceman and King Arthur dates back to 1979 and was released in the US as an unidentified flying oddball. <laughs> uh, it was. Uh, uh, do, do you remember it, John? 
no. <laughs> that that might be a good thing. <laughs> um, it was filmed at the Pinewood Studios in Buckinghamshire here in the UK and various oldie-worldy locations. Dennis Dugan uh, was the lead in this movie. He's probably more famous these days for the work behind the camera, directing most of Adam Sandler's movies. Also starring in the movie were a host of British talent, including classic movie actors like Kenneth Moore, Ron Moody, Jim Dale from the Carry On movies, and um, uh, John LeMessurier from Dad's Army, which was a TV series here. Uh, you, you've probably seen it, John, because being an Anglophile. Uh, well, no, but my dad loved Dad's <laughs> Army. Um, I do know Ron Moody, but only from Oliver. Yep, that's well, that's what he's most famous for. And Kenneth oh, Kenneth Moore was in a lot of these nineteen um, fifties World War Two fighter pilot type movies. <laughs> um, the reason it struck a chord with me is that there used to be a full size prop of the Stardust Space Shuttle uh, at a UK theme park called Black Gang Chine. I remember seeing the spacecraft at Black Gang Chine when I was on vacation as a kid. Um, Black Gang Chine is located on a lovely little island called the Isle of Wight, mm-hmm. which is spelt the Isle of Widget, um, about um, four miles off the coast of Hampshire, and is separated from the mainland by the, the Solent, a piece of water in between. Um, I'm not sure if if Stardust is still there um, maybe someone can get in touch with us and, and let us know whether it's still there because um, it, it, it would have been the, the late 80s was the last time I was there so <laughs> it's probably been decommissioned by now <laughs> um, and, and there are probably reasons why I have never heard of that movie. I doubt it's ever been released on disc for sure. I think it has actually. I, I think I've really? seen pictures of, wow. of of a DVD release. Yeah, but yeah, I, I looked at the pictures of the, of the Stardust, and there are similarities between that and the Dream Chase. <laughs> so. <laughs> Disney could wow. design a space shuttle. <laughs> I've, I've never... The the only live-action movie from Disney that I really can think of is The Black Hole. I quite like The Black Hole. <laughs> I did, so did I. I thought that was... It was a bit... It was quite cerebral. Yeah. Which is probably one of the reasons why it didn't do too well. But, I, I mean, just the, the iconic part of that, that fireball going down the chamber yeah. as they run across the bridge... Yeah. You know that—that's that alone was just like wow. I have but, well, I don't anymore because it's probably in about seven thousand pieces now. Um, <laughs> but I had a, a model of the spacecraft in that the, the you know the main one that uh, yeah. they they visit, and also I had a model of Maximilian the um, the really nasty yep. robot that's in I, there. I had a model of Vincent. Ah. Oh. I'd, I'd love to, and Bob. I'd love to have one of Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Did there you were. How many listeners are probably saying, "What the hell are you guys talking?" <laughs> the black hole. What? Vincent? Who? What? <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. Uh, it's it's a, a bit rough around the edges, but it, it's still quite a good film. Yeah, I, I heard rumors that they were planning on remaking it. I have heard rumors to that regard. I have not seen anything actually come of it. It could be done very well, <laughs> but um, it, 
it could be done really badly as well. Um, well, that, yeah, that could be said for any remake. Yeah, there are there are a few of them out there that are not very good. No, Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, all, all I'm going to say about Michael Bay is a lot of action, not a lot of plot. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you got to give him credit. He makes money. This is true. This is very true. The widow of astronaut Neil Armstrong has loaned a bag full of equipment used by her husband during the moon landings to the Smithsonian um, National Air and Space Museum after finding it in a closet. Carol Armstrong found the bag while clearing out part of the family home after Neil Armstrong died in 2012. Doesn't seem 2012. It only... Th- felt like a few months ago Um, it it seems that the space pioneer had kept some personal mementos that under the Apollo uh, 11 mission plans these items were supposed to be left on the Eagle module and would have been destroyed when the Eagle crashed into the moon um, after having carried Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to their rendezvous with Michael Collins needless to say the curator for the collection of space artifacts um, it's hard to imagine anything more exciting said Alan Needell the curator of the Air and Space Museum on the museum's blog Needell uh, gathered together a team of experts from Apollo Lunar Surface Journal to go through the records and confirm that the items were genuinely from the historic mission probably the most significant item was the 16mm data acquisition camera that had been mounted on the Eagle Lunar Module to record the eagle's touchdown with uh, armstrong's descent to the surface and the famous one small step it's quite an amazing collection uh, that was in in the bag they all they almost look brand new yeah well i mean if he just stowed them away as soon as you know whenever he got back uh, not not unsurprising really it just really amazed me to see this this stuff of I've, I've i've got a, a picture on well a set of pictures on the on the website um in the show notes uh with a, a complete list of everything that was in the bag so you can have a, a good route around of uh, everything that was there lately have you noticed that nasa's astronaut and and iss pictures have become a bit goofier they've been been doing it for a while actually they just seem to be doing a lot more often maybe it's just because i'm noticing it but this one the entire crew decided to have fun the international space station expedition 45 crew decided to become jedi (laughs) yes i (laughs) did see this it went well in the space community it went pretty viral (laughs) yeah well of course i mean that's just you you can't get much geekier unless they all had you know starfleet uniforms on that's about the closest Um, you can get to it yeah they've done uh, that as well (laughs) uh, that wouldn't surprise me i just don't recall that one so Um, yeah but all six of them are dressed in the, the brown jedi robes they've got lightsabers and even some of the ships in the background are kind of being reminiscent of of uh, Star Wars, uh, because the one is the European automated transfer vehicle, which has a distinctive X-wing kind of shape to it. Yeah. So that's depicted there. Um, and did you notice that the logo itself looks kind of like an Imperial Star Destroyer? It does. I thought it either looked like one of those or a Jedi Starfighter. Oh yeah, it could be Jedi Starfighter. <laughs> that would actually be more appropriate than now that I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> but I just I just thought that was funny. So it said that past ones did uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Tron, 
uh, like I said, Star Trek, Harry Potter, uh, Expedition Crew number 42 decided to do something more on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, yeah, 42, yeah. 42? <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's also a really cool poster. Uh, they did a few of them for the STS missions as well. Um, STS-125, which was the Hubble mission, they did it in the form of the Ocean's 12 poster. <laughs> um, oh, wow. Um, there's uh-huh. also, I can't remember, if it was, I think it might have been STS-131. They did it in the form of the Star Trek reboot poster. Mm, nice. And um, some of them, the as you mentioned, the, the the Pirates of the Caribbean or the Pilots over the Caribbean, as they called <laughs> it on the poster. <laughs> um, there's also one where they reconstructed the Abbey Road picture from the Beatles. Oh, I missed that one. I have to look that one up. <laughs> I think what I'll do is I'll select a few of them and and put them on the show notes so people can have a look at them That's there. Cool. Yeah, but this latest one is actually available. You can download it. It's print quality. Yeah, and it's it's sixty seven megs. That's a pretty big print. Yeah, it is. Wow. That, that's probably one of those things that it's meant to be printed off on a plotter. Yeah. Um, that would look good, though, in a frame, I think. Yeah, it would. <laughs> they, they've... It, um, I'm trying to think some of the... Uh, they've done one for... Uh, it's not the next one on from that, but it's based around Metropolis. And Oh, nice. They've used uh, Robonauts, too, in the picture <laughs> for that one. <laughs> Where's the Doctor Who with the spacemen? Yeah, I'm waiting for that one. That would be brilliant. It's just nice to see that they're they're having fun with that sort of thing. Hey, not all I'll serious just, and all business. Because you've got Tim Peake going up there, so he'd be British, so he could be the Doctor. There you go. <laughs> I hope someone from NASA is listening to this. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Into the Pottersphere with TGP Nominal. The next story um, is about a company called Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. Now, they have secured land for a full scale Hyperloop planned for 2016 launch in, in California in the model town of Key Valley. Elon Musk's designs have been freely available in the public domain. And the crowdfunded company has staked out a five-mile stretch of Key Valley adjacent to California's Interstate 5 freeway uh, as a place where the uh, innovative uh, transportation system can be deployed. Um, If successful, it would be the first full-size implementation of Elon Musk's ideas, which were published in August 2013. This installation will allow us to demonstrate all the systems on a full scale and immediately begin generating revenues for our shareholders through actual operations, said the CEO, Dirk Alban. Uh, in a statement if you're not familiar with what the hyperloop is it's elon musk's almost sci-fi idea that involves firing human carrying pressurized capsules 
on a cushion of air at close to the speed of sound. To put that into context, it's a pod that shoots you along at 760 miles per hour and will get you from London to Edinburgh in 26 minutes and 12 seconds. That's approximately 400 miles. (laughs) And if you were to drive that distance, it would take you just under eight hours. (laughs) Well, that's that's not even taking California traffic into account, in which case it could be 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen some of the, <laughs> the hold-ups there. Um, Elon Musk also hopes to build a, a test track for Hyperloop in Texas and has brought up the subject at the Texas Transportation Forum. The Tesla founder then followed up with a tweet to confirm a Texas-based test track is on the cards. Now, Elon tends to do a lot of things through Twitter. I don't know if you've noticed that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Elon's other company, SpaceX, has mm-hmm. a launch facility in Texas, so it's no surprise that he would choose this as the location for his own test track. HTT well, would also be a great spot to put that into to actual production though i mean the, the state is huge yeah if you if you drove across the panhandle it would take about 13 hours wow but you figure dallas and fort worth are considered to they're, they're basically considered to be one cluster if you want to call it that but in truth to drive between them it's like 30 to 45 minutes apart but yet the state is so big that they, they're just like oh yeah te- dallas fort worth <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just just because of that. So to put a hyperloop between like Dallas and Fort Worth, or Dallas and like Austin or Houston, I could see that being a really popular thing if he can get it to work. Yeah, definitely. HTT say that Elon Musk's track is a scaled down model, allowing for easier testing of the physics involved. Whereas HTT's track will be designed for human passengers and testing the passenger systems but this will come with limitations with only five miles of track the craft will top out at just 200 miles an hour rather than the 760 miles per hour predicted in uh, Musk's initial documents but he said it's not about speed he told the verge there are a lot of things that need to be optimized he didn't actually say what needed to be optimized but just there's a lot of things that need to be done Um, Key Valley is an unusual home for the project. It was originally planned as a solar-powered city of the future. The project only recently emerged from a six-year legal battle over water rights with a neighbouring farm. Uh, The current project plans 25,000 housing units alongside hotels, restaurants and a business park spread across 7,500 acres in California's Central Valley. The proposed Hyperloop will be designed as a functioning, albeit limited, mass transportation system for the town, charging residents for rides and providing a revenue stream for HTT. Kind of reminds me of the episode of The Simpsons when they bought the monorail system for Springfield. (laughs) The company brought together a group of 200 engineers from all over America who spend their free time spitballing ideas in exchange for stock options. Yeah, something to do, I guess. All of who have daytime jobs at places like Boeing, NASA, Yahoo, Airbus... And along with a group of 25 students from UCLA's graduate architecture program are working on a wide array of issues including route planning, capsule design and cost analysis. The big question for the project is funding. HTT is looking to raise $100 million to build the test track. The full version is projected to cost between 7 
and sixteen billion dollars. <laughs> but you you know what? If you've ever seen, depending on like where they do it in California, if, if they do it, even just like between Los Angeles and you know San Francisco or whatever, I mean, you've seen the pictures of traffic in California where they will have six lanes of traffic in both directions yep. completely solid. Yep, it's it's a parking lot. Basically. It's a total parking lot, and and it's just you know while well, part of that is we Americans do love our cars, but you know if if they could take something like this, I'll bet they could depending on how often the the cars can run obviously and how much they charge, I'll bet they could still break even in you know maybe five ten years even if it does cost several billion dollars, and you know anything to try to alleviate the congestion out there. What they've done so far. Most of the funding has come from equity-backed crowdfunding on Jump Jumpstart Fund, mm-hmm. um, enticing early backers with a, a share of future revenues. But a hundred million dollars is out of reach for Jumpstart Fund, so Auburn is planning an auction. The auction will be open to the general public, in keeping with the crowd-sourced spirit of the whole project. A bold move for a company that has no revenue stream yet, but still. Yeah. Auburn seems undeterred. For us, the most important thing is going out and putting the project project onto the market. The potential for this is enormous, especially you know it's nice to see people. Oh, why you, know, you go look at Japan? How come they have how come they have that and we don't? Oh, we're a significantly bigger country, <laughs> so got to take baby steps. And if it's just connecting a couple of California cities, yeah, we'll we'll get it across the country eventually if it works. Yeah, and I think that the general public will want to get involved i mean oh yeah and once again it's one of elon musk's ideas and people will want to get involved <laughs> definitely well, I mean, if, if you drive from new york to la i mean i mean driving with no brakes nothing it'll take a i mean as in uh, no interruptions <laughs> if you want to drive with brakes <laughs> but but it takes about 55 hours and then of course just the cost of an air flight from la to to New York, it's still going to be six hours, you know, of, of flight. So if he can do something that will compare with that, that's a good thing. Well, you think about it. You know, they're saying four hundred miles in under half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking on that. You could get a job somewhere and commute and not worry about anything. I mean, you. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what I'll do is I'll put a link to Elon Musk's original documents, his original plans in, in the show notes as well so people can have a look and see what, what it's all about because that's only put a, a, a small amount of it in, into perspective when you see the, the, the whole document um, it's it's a mind boggling project, it really is it is, it is, especially when you're talking about how he's going to be depressurizing the tubes it's like, wow, how do you really do that <laughs> the the thing that amazed me was um elon's illustrations that he puts in with it as well they're almost like like a sci-fi when they're when they're designing cars and things for sci-fi movies and and then things it's it's oh it's, a, it's brilliant to look at it really is yeah. Um, but then, being as he's a designer anyway, um, perspective drawing comes second nature to him anyway. Yeah, that, that'll definitely be exciting to see. 
The next story is about a company called Spike Aerospace, and they are in the midst of building the first ever supersonic private jet. The $80 million or 47.9 million pound S512 takes off in December 2018, and it won't have something you'll find on every other passenger aircraft. And that is Windows. The Boston-based aerospace firm is taking advantage of the recent advances in video recording and live streaming and display technology with uh, an interior that replaces the windows with massive high-definition screens. I've seen that. That is actually really cool. Kind of disconcerting, but really cool. (laughs) The idea is that the, the exterior of the plane will be lined with tiny cameras sending footage to thin curved displays lining the interior walls of the fuselage. Um, The result will be an unbroken panoramic view of the outside world. And if passengers want to sleep or distract themselves from the ominous rain clouds, (laughs) they can darken the screen or choose from an assortment of ambient images. It's just like something out of Back to the Future 2 with the the window thing. This isn't just a whiz-bang feature for an eight-figure aircraft. While windows are essential for keeping claustrophobia in check, they require engineering workarounds that compromise the fuselage's simple structure, and that goes twofold uh, for a supersonic aircraft. An aeroplane is stronger without windows, which is one of the reasons why planes carrying military personnel or packages fly without them. Putting passenger windows on the plane requires a meticulous uh, construction. The ovular shape, small aperture and the double pane construction are all there to maintain the cabin pressure and resist Mm -hmm. cracking whilst flying 500 mile an hour at 35,000 feet. It would be much simpler and safer to have a smooth-skinned, windowless fuselage, but frequent flyers might be accustomed to the calming view of the clouds and the tiny cities. If you get the the look of that on a video, you'll probably forget that it's not a window, I would have thought. I would. I mean, yeah, I can understand why it would be disconcerting, but, I mean, yeah, the windows are... they have to take those into consideration. I mean, back in, uh, I think it was the 1940s, there were a bunch of aircraft crashes from uh, de Havilland and nobody could understand what was going on why were these planes just just crashing and it turned out that they had they had like uh, square windows or windows with really sharp corners and they found out that it was just getting stress fractures right where those windows were and the the you know fuselage would pretty much just break apart at those window cracks because of the sharp corners so that, that's why yeah even the the rounded cornered ones you know there are there are issues to be to be had on that one so i mean having a whole screen as long as the cameras aren't work or as long as the cameras are working just fine i i'd actually be really interested to see that i just hope that somebody doesn't play around with the the, the video though because you could <laughs> oh yeah some practical jokers <laughs> could do some real embarrassing things with that yeah <laughs> you could have some su- superman <laughs> flying past as you go I was thinking more gutter-minded, but, you know, that's okay. <laughs> Superman flying past would be kind of cool, too. <laughs> um, well, what, what, yeah, I can, I can see where you were going with that now. We're not yet. We're, we're done on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> 
top secret documents that were used by Alan Turing to break the German Enigma code have been discovered lining the walls of a World War II code-breaking hut. The papers were found stuffed in the ceilings and holes of the walls during the renovations of Bletchley Park, where the code-breaking took place. They include the only known examples of the Banbury sheets, which were used to speed up the decryption of the Nazi messages. Parts of an atlas and a fashion article were also found in the roof of Hut 6. Bletchley Park's Director of Learning and Collections, Victoria Warpole, said that it was quite rare to find any new paperwork. She said it's quite interesting to think that these were actual handwritten pieces of code-breaking workings out. Some of the papers are believed to have been used to insulate the hot walls, and these have been sent off to GCHQ, the, the Government Communications Headquarters, which is the um, the, the intelligence and security organisation and the, the, the British equivalent of um, the, the, the NSA. Um, um, <laughs> so, so they can be analysed. <laughs> Hopefully they're a bit more scrupulous than our NSA here, but anyway... <laughs> We are un- unraveling a mystery, said Mrs. Warpole. The artifacts will form part of an exhibition to take place in Hut 12 called The Restoration of Bletchley Park. The other items found in the restoration include a fragment of a 1940s teapot, bricks from a Block F which was demolished in 1987, and a time capsule left inside one of the doors in Hut 11. Alan Turing devised the Bamberisms um, technique in 1940 to infer information about the probable daily settings of the naval enigma uh, decoding machine it involved punching holes in long sheets of paper to represent different ciphers the renovation of the huts was part of an eight million pound uh, revamp of bletchley park to restore the wartime appearance of the site's historic blocks and huts which had fallen into this repair the work of Mr. Turing and others at Bletchley Park is widely acknowledged to have shortened the war by as much of two, as two years. Bletchley's role in cracking the German codes had been kept secret until 1970. Uh, it's an amazing place to go to, actually, Bletchley Park. It, not only is it all about decoding and things like that, it's, it's also there's a computing museum there too. Um, and there's one of the oldest examples of a computer uh, in there, it's one of these ones that takes up an entire room. It's massive. <laughs> oh yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really worth a look. That, that's actually really cool, especially and you know, fitting, especially with the uh, the imitation game being as popular as it is now to to highlight his story. And unfortunately, the way he was treated by the British government was pretty bad. Well, um, yeah, uh, for all he did to the, for the war effort, it's good to see that he's being recognised now mm-hmm. well i mean really how much longer could the war have lasted if he didn't crack that code i can understand wanting it to do that uh, they, they were saying that the germans were on the brink of making a brand new machine so mm-hmm. if that had happened it would have all been defunct anyway but he was lucky that he managed to do what he did well i don't think it was luck it was um yeah no <laughs> it was he knew what he was genius. doing it just took a while <laughs> Crichton, what are you doing man oh sir I'm listening to the Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. Leonard Nimoy, who portrayed Mr. Spock on Star Trek, passed away on the 27th of February at his home in Los Angeles after a long battle with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, He was 83. 
Following his death, countless tributes had poured in for the man who popularised the phrase live long and prosper. Among those remembering Nimoy's legacy were astronauts, scientists, writers, sci-fi fans, fellow actors and directors. Hello, I'm NASA astronaut Mike Fink. And I'm European Space Agency astronaut Luca Parmitano. We were very saddened to hear of the passing of the actor Leonard Nimoy. Leonard's character, Mr. Spock, inspired generations of NASA scientists and engineers, as well as engineers, scientists, and Star Trek fans across the planet. And as we at NASA, along with our international partners, explore the moon, Mars, and beyond, we'll take the spirit of and energy that Leonard brought to his character, Mr. Spock, along with us. Live long and prosper. The message of Star Trek is one of cooperation and integration. Mr. Spock, uh, a Vulcanian from a different planet, was fully integrated in his crew of humans and non-humans. We at the European Space Agency believe in that message and working with our international partners, we will take that message with us as we go beyond to explore space for humanity and for our planet. Even President Barack Obama, who wrote a statement from the White House long before being nerdy was cool, there was Leonard Nimoy. Leonard was a long-time lover of the arts and humanities, a supporter of the scientists, generous with his talent and his time. And of course, Leonard was Spock. Cool, logical, big-eared and level-headed. The centre of Star Trek's optimistic, inclusive vision of humanity's future, Obama wrote. In 2007, I had the chance to meet Leonard in person. It was only logical to greet him with a Vulcan salute, the universal sign for live long and prosper. And after 83 years on this planet and on his visit to many others, it's clear that Leonard Nimoy did just that. Michelle and I join his family, friends and countless fans who will miss him so clearly today. Zachary Quinto, who took over from the role of Spock in the Star Trek reboot, and acted alongside Nimoy in two films, thanks the film's time-twisting plot lines shared on his Instagram. My heart is broken. I love you profoundly, my dear friend, and I'll miss you every day. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. In a handwritten note, Star Trek director J.J. Abrahams penned, Dearest Leonard, what a man you were, what a life you lived, as funny and thoughtful and generous and loving as you, as you were talented. You taught us all, at every encounter, we will miss you and love you forever. A trio of Star Trek captains also remembered their fallen Conrad. It is with deep sadness that I heard of Leonard Nimoy's death. I was lucky to spend many happy, inspiring hours with him. He won't be forgotten, tweeted Patrick Stewart, who played Jean-Luc Picard on the TV spin-off Star Trek The Next Generation. His long-time co-star, William Shatner, wrote... I loved him like a brother. We will all miss his humour, his talent and his capacity to love. Chris Pine, who portrays Captain Kirk in the Star Trek cinematic reboot, tweeted, Simply, the world has become a darker place. And yes, I do believe it has, because Spock was pretty much iconic more than, more than Kirk, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's... I mean, there's just... First of all, he, he, he made science cool. He was really the first TV character who made science cool.
cool and approachable and um it, it's just you know he, he's one of the three originals they, they were just a team and it just that, that one hurt that one hurt i found out friday when i got back from lunch at work and i i couldn't do anything else after that I knew I had work to do, but I just, my brain and my heart just couldn't do it. Yeah, it was, just, a, was a difficult one. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of uh, Samantha Cristoforetti on the, the space station, because she is the science officer on board the ISS yeah. at the moment, and she was wearing a blue shirt with a Star Trek pin. Um, yeah, I did see that. That was quite a, a good picture. It was something that I, I heard. It was an interview on um, on YouTube uh, with uh, George Takei. He, they were about to do the animated versions of the, mm -hmm. the original series. And originally, it was only going to be Shatner and um, Leonard Nimoy doing the voices um, to cut costs. They were going to get some voice actors in to do the other parts. Leonard Nimoy said, no, this, this is not right, because mm -hmm. the whole point of Star Trek is the diversity of it all. And the, the crew members that made it diverse was Uhura, Sulu, and Chekhov. And he, he basically said, if, if they're not doing it, then I'm not doing it. Yeah, and um, I saw someone someone on Twitter posted. Uh, this is a list of all of the negative things that I have heard in print or you know in speech or whatever on Leonard Nimoy being you know bad to other people. This concludes this list. Yeah. E everything that uh, I've been reading and so forth said that he was just an absolute gentleman to everyone, always nice, always friendly. And I mean, a lot of people don't realize that he was a lot more than just Spock, too. I mean, granted, that's his gift to us. Yeah. That, that, that's what's going to stay. But, I mean, he directed two of the Star Trek movies. Mm -hmm. He directed uh, Three Men and a Baby back in 1987, which was the top grossing film of that year. You know, poet, photographer. Uh, in fact, I mean, his, his website isn't like NeonardNimoy.com. It's actually NeonardNimoyPhotography.com. All right. And, you know, he, he has books of poetry, books of his photography. And I followed him on Twitter. And uh, have you seen his last tweet? That made it really hit home. Yeah. Because uh, he said, uh, a life is like a garden. Perfect memories can be had, but not preserved except in memory. LLAP, live long and prosper. And that just hit. <laughs> that was one of those things was like, wow. That's, he knew, didn't he? Uh, you know, it makes you wonder. Or, or if he knew that, you know what, I'm getting up there, it might be getting, I, I don't know. But it, it's just one of those where, yeah, that, that one hurt. That one really hurt to lose him. And he's one of those, we all know it's going to happen. We all know that our time is going to be here eventually. But he's just one of those people you just felt could live forever. But I see a lot of posts from Americans, and there's a lot of people that they grew up with. And it doesn't really mean a lot to us in the UK because we didn't mm -hmm. have those television programs or whatever but sure when it comes to someone like that it does just hits home because there's i don't think there's anybody who doesn't know who leonard nimoy is yeah i mean even if they don't like star trek they know who spock is yeah wanted to uh, include a piece because being a sci-fi fan i just wanted to pay my respects by including yeah. those in there. there there's also a few other pieces on there from twitter from other astronauts who paid their respects to leonard nimoy mm -hmm. and i thought i'd include them on on the show notes as well live long and prosper 
Right, the next story is uh, about Easton La Chapelle. Now, you probably haven't heard of him. Nope. Though he's he's already done enough to land a job at NASA on the Robonaut project, developing a new telerobotic interface. Bearing in mind this boy is only 19. At 14, he made his first robotic hand out of Lego, fishing wire and electrical tubing. And with his gradual improvement, he turned the hand into an advanced 3D printed invention that was powered solely by the use of his mind. After an encounter with a seven-year-old girl at a science fair whose prosthetic arm cost $80,000 and would need to be replaced when she outgrew it, La Chapelle was inspired to turn his prototype into a practical and an affordable device. Not only were his designs amazing, but his young age, in addition to his self-taught knowledge of robotics, started to make an impact. At 17, Easton founded his own company called Unlimited Tomorrow, which is developing a new concept of an exoskeleton to help paraplegics walk again. The company is also creating an open source robotic arms that can be used in all manner of things from prosthetics to a robotic learning platform. With the robotic arm and hand being open source, it gives it a platform to naturally fall into the hands of the people who need it. I've included a really inspiring video about Easton La Chapelle in the show notes. He's just an amazing, amazing guy. And and very humbling to see what people can do, you know, and we don't even think about that. Absolutely amazing. The the actual arm that he's developed costs about three hundred dollars to make. Certainly beats eighty (laughs) thousand. Um, the the video you will see in the video that there's a guy there. He's got um, uh, well a hook, basically, and he puts on this arm for the first time and puts the headset on, and you can see him controlling the fingers. It's, it, they've actually got proper joints and everything. I can't remember how many points of uh, movement that they've got, but it's it's pretty accurate. And Is what, that the one where he was actually able to? Uh, to handle like a light bulb something really fragile yes he has been able to okay. do that yeah but he's 19 it's <laughs> amazing and imagine what he can do in the future he's got, got all that to come they are they are comparing him with the likes of elon musk already but he's got a long way to go but if he did something like come up with something really cool like this and say oh hey anybody who's got a 3d printer go for it that's pretty much what he's doing um, yeah. I've actually downloaded the plans <laughs> to have a look at it. I've, I've got the STL files and I've, I've had a look at what you can do. The only thing it doesn't include is um, the wiring diagrams at the moment. Right. Um, but he is, once he's worked out how to, to do it in a way so that it's easier for people to implement, um, it'll be up on the website as well. Pretty amazing stuff. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. The the next story actually ties in with that quite well. Have you ever heard of a a cybathlon? No. (laughs) (laughs) Cybernetic biathlon, triathlon, something along those lines? Well... The first subathlon uh, will be taking place in 2016, and it's an Olympic Games for bionic athletes. 
and it will take place in Switzerland, in, well, in Zurich, in Switzerland. The event is this actually sponsored by the International Olympic Committee? Um, no, this is a completely independent thing altogether. Ooh. A bit like the Paralympics, it's it's a separate entity altogether. The event will include a race where competitors control an avatar via a brain interface. There will also be races for competitors wearing prosthetic limbs and exoskeletons. It's hosted by the Swiss National Competence Centre for Research and is hoped that the competition will spur interest in human performing enhancing technology. The brain-computer interface race is designed for competitors who are paralysed from the neck down. They will control an avatar in a computer racing game via a headset that connects the brain to the computer. There will also be races for those wearing um, arm or leg prosthetics, prosthetics, an exoskeleton race and a wheelchair race. The assisted uh, devices worn by the athletes, who will be known as pilots, can either be ones that are already commercially available or prototypes from research labs. There will be two medals in each competition, one for the pilot and one for the company that developed the device. Bionic limbs and exoskeletons are becoming much more technically advanced, offering those wearing them much more realistic movements. Professor Hugh Herr from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology showed off some of the prosthetics that his team have been working on at the TED, um, the Technology, Entertainment and Design Conference in Vancouver. He's currently in negotiations uh, with healthcare professionals to get the bionic limbs more widely available to those who need them. Often, though, there is a, was a disconnect between the technology and the patients, said Professor Robert Reiner, uh, event organiser from the University of Switzerland. The idea is that we want to push the development of the assistive technologies towards the devices that patients can really use in everyday life, he told the BBC. Some of the current technologies look very fancy but are a long way from being practical and user-friendly, he added. The other main aim of the Games is to allow people to compete who have never had the opportunity before. We are allowing technology that has previously been excluded from the Paralympics by making it a public event, we want to get rid of the borders between patients, society and technology community, Professor Reiner said. Now, I think this is an absolutely brilliant idea and I'm looking closely into it. I'm following Professor Reiner uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I'm hoping to, to get in touch with them uh, and find out a little bit more about it. I've, I've put a video, the... Um, show notes for you all to have a look at and uh, I, I really believe this is there is a space for this um, there are absolutely I mean there are for a while people said why why have we got a Paralympic Games now mm-hmm. now some of these athletes are the best in the world and why shouldn't people that are completely paralysed as it were not be given the opportunity to do so too I mean, yeah, why not? you look at, um, I mean, I know he's not an, an athlete, but you look at Stephen Hawkins, it, the, the idea of how he is able to communicate using 
brainwaves and uh, his computer is exactly the same as what they uh, intend to do with these athletes. I mean, let's face it, he has he has more brains in his pinky than I think a lot of us have in our entire head. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> but, I mean, am I the only one who... You, you talked about how they'd have suits and they'd be called pilots. Am I the only one who immediately thought of something like, you know, the, the Gundam or the Mech Warrior series? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have these big mechs fighting each other now. Yeah, I can see... Yeah. <laughs> It would be like that, um, what was that, that Hugh Jackman film that was... Um... Yeah, yeah, sort of like that. Or, or you know, for video game, it's like, hey, Titanfall. <laughs> <laughs> Except they're called pilots there, too. It's like, wow, that's just... Ah, my gaming kicks in. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be following this very closely um, because um, I don't know if you've heard some of the things I'll put it up on the garbage pod uh, podcasts the Paralympics is very mm-hmm. close to my heart because the spiritual home of the Paralympics is my hometown now it's just one of the biggest events in the world and it's very humbling to see some of these athletes actually compete one of the athletes that really um, made me feel humble was I can't remember the guy's name is an Italian former F1 driver and uh, he was in a car crash and um, was severely disabled because of it. And he won the gold medal at the 2012 Olympics in the hand cycle racing. Um, So to be able to come back and compete in another sport after a horrific crash like that, yeah, it's it's very humbling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's cool. It's good to see that this is happening. TGP nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. The next thing I've got on my list is something that I, I know you... You mentioned on, uh, I, I can't remember, it must have been on on Facebook, and it's the um, the, the new Viewmaster. I want this. <laughs> I thought you might. I want this. So basically, Google have teamed up with Mattel uh, to launch a 21st century version of the original Viewmaster. Um, the, the Viewmaster was originally introduced in 1939 at the World's Fair in New York, giving consumers access to... A spectacular 3D world by um, simply selecting a reel and looking through the device. By working with Google's cardboard platform, they're now able to take the experience further, uh, bringing the discovery and immerse viewing experience um, of the Viewmaster to a digital age. Basically, from what I can gather, you don't actually put the discs in there. It, that that's kind of like a um, a hub, is a hub, isn't yeah. it? Kind of thing. Uh, or, or it might have. It might actually be like more of a USB device, mm-hmm. sort of. You know, and that will store the stuff on it. But so even if it's just treated as Google Cardboard, you yeah. know, that in and of itself is enough for me because there's a, like I said that that program that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and and just other Google Cardboard apps that are out there. That's just. That's cool stuff. And I, I love 3D. I know that puts me in the minority. I don't care. And I, I remember fondly the Viewmasters. And I just, I want one. <laughs> That's um, all there is. That the kid in me is screaming for this thing. When I was a kid, um, when I first got my Viewmaster, uh, the big movie of the time was E.T. And uh, there was a, an E.T. Viewmaster came with the, the discs of the, um, mm-hmm. basically the movie. Um, and I can also remember a Danger Mouse one <laughs> as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Viewmaster, I used to used to love it as a kid. This new I, I version. I'm interested to see how this works. 
Now, let me have a look, see what it says here. Um, so it's, it's, gonna, it's going to retail for 30 bucks, but then they talk about pairing it with an app and a smartphone. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that's supposed to work. And they see real packs are going to be an additional $15. It, it looks, looking on the pictures, that, as you say, it could be a USB thing or... or um, could be, well, I'm starting to figure out why pair it with an app and a smartphone when you'd think the whole thing could be self-contained. But I, mean, I guess we just have to look into it, but I'd still want one. <laughs> and it says here that, the, that Mattel plans to support the iPhone at a later date too, which is unusual for, for uh, Android to be <laughs> on well, top of yeah, something. Yeah, pairing it with Google because of cardboard. Yeah, yeah. It, it might be a thing now where iPhone users might be in, in envy of, of the Android. Ah, they'll get it eventually. Uh, you know, as long as I'm here, I'm signing up. Yeah, I, I do like because, as you say, it's not that expensive, so uh, it sounds good to me. On the 30th of January 2015, Cineworld uh, launched the UK's first 4DX theatre on its uh, Milton Keynes site. Nice. The uh, auditorium has, has taken a total of five months to complete and includes 140 seats plus a curved screen measuring 19 feet by 34 feet, uh, which is bigger than a double-decker bus, providing a, a, re- a revolutionary cinematic experience uh, which simulates all five senses. The 4D auditorium will include high-tech motion seats, special effects including wind, fog, lightning, bubbles, water, rain, and scents. Doesn't say anything about taste. <laughs> <laughs> In both 2D and 3D formats, these effects work in sync uh, with the action on the screen, creating the most unmissable and exhilarating cinema experience yet. Now, I've I've kind of had a go at one of these. Um, went to it was like a Sea Life Center, mm-hmm. and they were showing a an episode of Blue Planet. So you can imagine you're going to get wet. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I looked at the the 3D glasses as I went in. I said these are a bit wet, and she said, "Yeah, it's just the liquid they use to clean the glasses." And I was like, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> <laughs> So sure, <laughs> but it was really good. I'm looking forward to going to one of these. Actually, now that I know it is, because Milton Keynes is uh, not far from my hometown, so I'm I'm going back home soon. So hopefully, I can go to uh, the 4DX cinema and have a little look. Well, um, yeah. C- compared to the United States, nothing in England is very far away from each other. <laughs> <laughs> It says, yeah, actually, um, they got one of those out in Los Angeles, too, and uh, I forget exactly what it was that they were showing, but when they did show it, even like during the day, they were sold out You know, the, the vast majority of the time, uh, or else they had like 90% of the seats sold. So, And that's even like two weeks into it after it first opened. So that's saying something for how immersive this must be and how much people, even if it's, if it's kind of just a, you know, oh, let's just go in and see what it's like. You know, still... Obviously, enough people liked it that they still, you know, they were doing well, even, uh, you know, two weeks or so forth after they originally opened, even with the inflated ticket prices. But yeah, I mean, when you've got the motion seats and the smells and rain, fog, wind, that's, yeah, it, it might be a little, um, I want to say niche. I don't know that that's totally accurate, but it's actually kind of cool. It says there's um, there's over 200 movies available. 
uh, including top blockbusters. Uh, a large number of movies will be released at the 4DX version in the UK, including Big Hero 6, Fast and Furious 7, Jupiter Ascending, The Avengers Age of Ultron, and Kingsman's Secret Service, which was the first film to be shown in the format. And that, that sounds like that could be quite interesting. From what I've seen of the trailers, <laughs> yeah. that could be an interesting one. The only thing I'm, I'm not looking forward to with it is if you had a film like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which a lot of the time they're down in a sewer. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> Although it might be overcome with the smell of pizza. That might take it away, but... Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> People in the UK will know Milton Keynes for its huge shopping centre, Concrete Cows, don't ask, and where... <laughs> and. <laughs> And where Cliff Richards' Wired for Sound pop video was shot. For superhero movie buffs, Milton Keynes might ring a bell to you also. Because those of you familiar with the Superman franchise, in particular, Superman for the Quest for Peace. No, that, that movie was never, that never existed. Don't know what you're talking about. Nope. <laughs> there is a scene that is supposed to take place in New York, just outside the UN headquarters. But you couldn't get any further from New York than Buckinghamshire's new city. All they did was throw in a couple of huge American cars parked in the background, distinctive American-style cast iron hydrants, a hot dog seller and a New York cop on a horseback. Mix it up with a little bit of music, movie magic, you wouldn't know the difference. Take a look at the pictures okay. on the show notes. <laughs> You'll see the difference. <laughs> okay. That, that's sort of like an Austin Powers. I says, you know, Southern California is not, or, or no, no, England is nothing like Southern California. Mm -hmm. Let's stick a red phone Playing box on in. That one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another example of that, and it gets me every time the live action version of 101 Dalmatians. Since what? when has there been raccoons? in the British countryside. <laughs> uh, my brain hurts. <laughs> what? Well, okay, I, no, I got no response to that one. I wish they'd think these things through before they do them. In response to the Austin Powers, it's tongue-in-cheek anyway, isn't it? Oh, so, yeah, 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 granted. <laughs> I mean, you only have to look at the streets there. The, the streets are about well, the equivalent of about three miles wide compared with Lon <laughs> London streets. <you> know? <laughs> In, in case you haven't heard the news, and where have you been if you haven't, mm. Sony and Marvel have, have jointly announced that Spider-Man will be joining the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, it's great that you're on board here now, John, because... <laughs> <laughs> so, so, what's the actual deal with that? Okay, the deal with that is Sony is effectively leasing Spider-Man Back to Marvel. So, I mean, the whole way that this came about was back before Marvel was bought out by Disney. They obviously didn't make their own movies. They said, okay, you know, well, whatever. If you guys want to do it, fine, great. Hey, Sony, we made a deal with you. You get Spider-Man and, you know, some, and, and related characters. Oh, yeah, you, 20th Century Fox, fine. We'll release all of our, or we'll uh, license all of our mutants and so forth to you guys. And these contracts will be in perpetuity. As long as you guys keep making movies, you guys hold on to the rights. And then Disney came around. And Sony and Fox are saying, uh-uh, we have the rights, we've got the contract. So the big deal, though, is that 
If you read the comics, Spider-Man is a very, very integral character with the upcoming uh, war that's going to be going on between the Marvel superheroes, which is going to be started with uh, Captain America 3. I don't know if it was Sony went to Marvel, because obviously the last two Spider-Man movies, they didn't do badly. You know, I mean, the, the first Amazing Spider-Man made $750 million worldwide. The second one made about $700 million worldwide. So, you know, they were profit makers for Sony, uh, but obviously they're nothing like Guardians of the Galaxy, mm -hmm. you know, or, or, or Iron Man or Avengers or whatever. So I don't know if Sony said, hey, can you guys help us make it better? Or if Marvel said, look, we really, 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 really would like Spider-Man to be part of this because, you know, in the comics, he is such an integral character. But either way... Sony has made a deal with Marvel that they will effectively lease Spider-Man to be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And in addition, they still get to maintain the rights to it. And then Marvel will help them with the production of their future Spider-Man movies. So Sony still holds on to the rights. Marvel still holds on to the marketing um, and merchandising and so forth. So, I mean, this really could end up being really beneficial for both of them. Spider-Man get, finally gets brought into Captain America, the Avengers, all that. Brought into the whole Civil War thing. Meanwhile, Sony might get some better stories and, you know, what they really need when it comes to, you know, help from Marvel to get Spider-Man popular once again, you know, like like it used to be with the the very first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire which did really well. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it it's you know, so it's actually a really cool way of both of them being able to finally cooperate and you know, maybe both getting what each other wants. So from what I've heard, Andrew Garfield's not going to be in the the new Yes, uh, that is true. Um, I mean, believe it or not, he's 31 years old. Doesn't but look they, it. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, and, and what's funny is that friends of mine who are really into the comics say that he pretty much nailed exactly what Spider-Man is supposed to be like. Right. Yeah. Throwing out the one-liners and, and smart-alecky and so forth. Uh, they, so they said that as a character, he nailed it. But unfortunately, um, Sony did admit that they were in talks with Andrew Garfield to bring him back. And it just, they just couldn't get it to work out. So chances are that they're going to bring a, a newer, well, they're obviously going to have to bring a new actor in. And he's probably going to be more around the age that Spider-Man would be. But obviously we have no information at all yet on casting because they haven't even really done anything with it yet. There were rumors that they were going to use another character instead of Peter Parker because there was a, a guy called Miles Morales uh, right. who, who came in uh, after the death of Peter Parker in the comics. Now, everybody knows Peter Parker as, as Spider-Man. Uh, I think bringing in this other character would be not a great idea um yeah uh, and you know, oh god this is kind of a sensitive topic but but to be blunt there are people on this in this world who would not accept anything other than you know a, a white spider-man let's just put it that way um but even at that yeah you're right peter parker is the most well-known so uh, who knows what they're going to do? Do we really need another take on how he got bitten by a spider and everything? You know, it's we know how it's done. That's just <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I'm. I don't know how they're going to do that. And and obviously the deal was only really announced a few weeks ago, so they're still in the planning stages. In fact, Marvel shifted their schedule uh, for their upcoming movies through. Uh, 2020, most likely in order to try to fit Spider-Man into the Marvel Universe. 
So they're just planning all of that. Who knows what's going to happen? Are the Sony ones going to be separate from the Marvel ones? You know, there, there's... I mean, I can't really see Sony trying to integrate their side into what was established in the Marvel Universe, so they're probably still going to be separate. You know, no idea, Will is Marvel's Spider-Man going to be the same actor as Sony's? Are they going to be separate actors? Who knows? It's too early to tell right now. Do you think that it would ever happen with the X-Men as well, or do you think that would be too difficult to deal with Fox? <sighs> Rumor has it that Fox and Marvel... Uh, are not nearly as close as Sony and Marvel. And quite frankly, with the success of the last X-Men movie, Fox really doesn't need Marvel at this point. So, I mean, who knows? Now, that might also change because Disney needs to work with Fox in order to release the unaltered original Star Wars trilogy, which that's still in the rumor mill, but that's that's pretty sure that that's going to happen now. But Fox owns all of the rights to the very to the first Star Wars movie. So if Disney wants to distribute the original trilogy unaltered, they have to work with Fox. And maybe that would be a building block to working on the, you know, the, the Fox licenses for the mutants. I don't know that that's just one of those things where there's really no way to know right now until either of them make an announcement. Laura LaRue here. Whenever I'm in the potosphere, there's only one place to be. The Garbage Pod. Hello there, Garbage Podophiles. Gareth Jones from Gareth Jones on Speed here. My name is Dr. Ryan Kobrick, and I'm the executive director of the Yuri's Night Global Executive Team. Rock the Podosphere and rock the planet. My name is Kate Arkless Gray, but many people know me as Space Kate. Hey, Mark. Uh, welcome to NASA Edge. Yeah, it's good to be on the Garbage Pod. International Rescue are back to mark the 50th anniversary of Thunderbirds, a co-production between ITV Studios and Pakeco Pictures, in association with the world-famous Weta uh, Workshop, uh, which are famous for Lord of the Rings and Avatar, is set to debut internationally this spring. Uh, the action-packed reboot has been produced using a unique mix of CGI animation and live-action model sets to deliver a new level of action-adventure adma- animation, whilst also playing tribute to the classic 1960s phenomenon. 50 years after its television debut, the iconic series is back in production, featuring a talented cast led by Rosamund Pike as Lady Penelope, uh, which which is good casting, I think, personally. David Graham... She's good, she's good eye candy, too. Did I say that? <laughs> I thought you might. Um, <laughs> David Graham is reprising his role from the original series as um, chauffeur and international rescue agent Parker. So it's good to see someone from the original series is still there. Whilst Tracy Brothers, Gordon and John are both being played by Thomas Brodie Sangster from Game of Thrones. Um, Rasmus Hardiker, British uh, TV actor, has been cast as both the youngest and the eldest Tracy brother, Alan and Scott. And the fifth Tracy brother, Virgil, will be played by David Menkin. Do you know that name, John? Uh, can't say that I do. He's a voiceover guy, mainly in the video game industry. Mm. <laughs> um, he's done uh, the Battlefield and the Killzone video game series. Tracy Island's matriarch, Grandma Tracy, is being voiced by Sandra Dickinson, played Trillian in the original TV 
series of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and was married to Peter Davidson, one of the doctors from Doctor Who. (laughs) (laughs) And the master villain... The Hood is played by Andres uh, Williams, who was in a, a TV version of The Musketeers. Uh, I don't know if you've had that over in the States yet. It's uh, Ooh, Not that I'm aware of. It's a BBC production. Um, what we get over here from the BBC is quite limited. It's, it's pretty good, actually. Uh, they've done quite a good job with it. Plus, the show will feature new characters, including a character called K.O., who's the Tracy Brothers' friend and fellow... Island resident who will be played by Angel Colby, who was in the TV series Merlin, and um, Colonel Casey, voiced by uh, Ajoa Ando, uh, who was in Invictus and Doctor Who. So um, it's, it sounds really uh, exciting, actually. Uh, I've got some pictures from the TV series, or it's just stills at the moment. People are mixed with what they see at the moment the funniest thing is at the moment i've been looking at the pictures of uh, lady penelope and parker and parker looks remarkably like noel gallagher from oasis <laughs> it's i've just got a comment here from rosamund pike she says i'm i'm excited to bring lady penelope's wry wit and t- and taste of adventure for the next generation exploring the scenes with david graham has been an absolute delight the scripts are very modern, very fresh, and very funny. We're eagerly anticipating our next stint in the recording studio. Now, ITV Studios have commissioned to make a second series of it, even though the premiere of the first series hasn't gone out yet. <laughs> well, I guess they have a good feeling for it, then. Yeah, they've ordered a further 26 episodes uh, to be aired in 2016 and 2017. Uh, this follows wow. the news that ITV Studios Global Entertainment has pre-sold the series to international broadcasters, including TVNZ or NZ in New Zealand, um, <laughs> Australia's uh, Nine Network, and Nogal in Israel, and Pan Arab broadcaster NBC. That's M for mother, not N for no one, a BC. There's no mention of America yet, but it's only a matter of time. I'm sure. Another Anderson Entertainment animated series is coming to the internet. Terrahawks, stay on this channel. This is an emergency. It's called Zeroids vs. Cubes and features all the favourite robot characters from Terrorhawks, alongside a set of new characters called Iggy, Cyber, Brack and Erno, who will star in the short animated webisodes launching later in the year on um, jerryanderson.co.uk. Are you familiar with Terrorhawks, John? Not at all. Terrorhawks uh, is a 1980s TV show. It's very much like Thunderbirds. You've got a load of people that live on an island. They've got spaceships and things. They're fighting against aliens and whatnot. They've got a Rolls Royce with one of their agents called Kate Kestrel. The car changes colour depending on what she's wearing. She doesn't have a chauffeur. The car drives itself. It speaks. It's called Hudson. It's, it's actually okay. very funny. The the uh, the aliens involved. The the, the lead alien is, is called Zelda, <laughs> and she's um, really evil. Okay. Um, and basically, the um, there's a group of robots that defend the Earth, um, and they look like spheres, and they've all got different personalities, and 
they've all got different numbers each one there's um, a French one it's called Disneuf <laughs> um, and it's got a little French moustache painted on the front of it uh, <laughs> the the guy in charge or the robot in charge is called Sergeant Major Zero and it's voiced by a guy called Windsor Davis well they're gonna get it now while we're on the subject of Anderson Entertainment calling on international rescue agents if you are receiving this your electronic computer is de-scrambling our signal. Now, listen carefully. Now, we have reason to believe one of our enemies is getting close to discovering our location. We are temporarily leaving the island and relocating to one of our auxiliary bases. Base from Thunderbird 2. Ready for liftoff. Clear to go. See you at the rendezvous, Virgil. All agents, to defeat this enemy, we need your help. Convene in the inconspicuous town of Leicester, England from June 12th to 14th for a top-secret briefing. Our identification passes will be available in the next few weeks, and I will contact you at our next port of call with further instructions. Over and out. What this is all about is Andercon 2015. It's, it's the Anderson Entertainment second annual convention <laughs> for fans of Jerry Anderson and his award-winning cult hits such as Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, Stingray, UFO and Space 1999. The convention takes place this June on the 13th and 14th uh, with a launch event taking place on the evening of June the 12th at the Athena Cinema. Uh, it's a, stu- uh, a stunning, fully restored 1930s cinema in Leicester's cultural quarter. There will be special focus on Thunderbirds for its 50th anniversary and promises to be a must for fans of the show. Jamie Anderson, director of Anderson Entertainment and son of Jerry Anderson, said it's going to be a great chance to meet the cast and crew in person and to see the original props up close. We'll have exclusive screenings, panels and workshops. If you if you want to find out more information about the event and purchase tickets, they're available at uh, www.andercon.com. .co.uk, but I will put links up to to it there as well so on the website, so you can have a look at that. Oh, that's, I didn't know that Jerry Anderson also did uh, Space 1999. Oh, he he did um, a lot of live action ones as well as uh, animated there. But yes, um, he did Space 1999, Space Cops. Remember that? <coughs> that doesn't uh, ring a bell. That was a, an American stroke British crossover i think it might have been called space precinct actually uh in the states uh, but yeah he's, he's done quite a few uh, uh live action ones but the best of the live action ones apart from ufo was space i vaguely remember that one yeah, that was very cheesy but then it was yeah. from the 60s <laughs> yeah i mean it's I, I do remember space 1999 i remember that one Oh, I love Space 1999. I've, st- I've still got episodes of it on the hard drive, actually. I heard they were looking at rebooting that to a degree, but I don't recall hearing anything else from it. That could be done very easily. Yeah, there is a lot of um, possibility with Space 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, I did enjoy that. Just please, what was her name? Barbara Bean? Was that the the lead actress? Something uh, like that? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, uh, I, I can't remember her name. Just please, my God, don't get anyone like her again, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was a little bit uh, wooden. You, I wonder <laughs> if they had to like cut the scene during filming sometimes to twist the key in her back, you know, to give her a little bit more energy. <laughs> but but some some of the um, characters they've had in there are guest characters, if you like, people like Brian Blessed. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> you, 
Everybody knows Brian Blessing. Everybody knows him. Of course, the question is from what? I mean, you know, for me, it's uh, Flash, Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon, yeah. <laughs> Gordon's alive! Gordon's alive! Gordon's alive! Um, <laughs> do you know you can get Brian Blessed uh, for your Tom Tom? Uh, that wouldn't surprise me. You can get Darth Vader for your Tom Tom as well. That would get... scare the hell out of you. You were supposed <laughs> to turn left there, you fool! Well, from what I understand, I don't know if you're familiar, if you've ever played Portal, the, the video game Portal. I, I do know the game. Yep, yep. Yeah, the the Glados character who's very sarcastic and mean in a always kind of friendly voice kind of way, but still just really mean. <laughs> Apparently, if you get her and download her for your Tom Tom, she'll you know like you're supposed to turn left and she'll tell you to turn right just out of spite. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> just don't take your Tom Tom to. Brainless, that wouldn't surprise me, though. <laughs> Hawkman, die! <laughs> Don't know how they'd work that in, but that's okay. I want it clearly understood that I accept no responsibility for this. One of the last stories we've got is... Yes, th um, this next one, explain this to me. I, I, I intentionally did not look this up when I saw <laughs> this was on the topic list, because I wanted to hear this. He's voiced a horse a king and an alien supercomputer, but now actor, comedian and TV presenter Alexander Armstrong takes on his biggest vocal challenge to date as debonair secret agent Danger Mouse in the eagerly awaited new series of The Animated Adventures. Oh my God. How did I not know of this? <laughs> Call him! CBBC has commissioned initially 52 episodes and is set to air on the channel later this year. The series is currently in production and uh, is am animated by Boulder Media and Fremantle Media Kids and Family Entertainment. Um, well, Fremantle own the rights to the original TV series anyway. Oh my god. If, if they, oh my god, this is just... <laughs> if they keep this true to the original series, I will be finding every way possible to download every single episode if they don't make it available over here. I am like total Danger Mouse addict. Um, that, that was like part of my daily routine when I was a teenager. <laughs> Bob Higgins from Fremantle Media says Danger Mouse is one of the most popular children's TV characters ever to grace the television screens. And we have a big responsibility to carry on the tradition and recreate the comedy magic of the original series. Our new, <laughs> our new vocal cast has the perfect blend of talent, charm, and tongue-in-cheek humour to bring these iconic and much-loved characters to life. Alexander Armstrong <gasps> will be joined by Kevin Eldon, who uh, will channel his inner hamster as Danger Mouse's trust, trusty sidekick, <laughs> Penfold. Steve, you pulled this article just for me, didn't you? <laughs> me too, because I love, I love Danger Mouse too. But I've been holding on to this for a little while. I've been trying to find a, an ideal place to put it in the oh. show. Stephen Fry will lend his dulcet tones as Colonel K. Nice. That's brilliant casting. Absolutely brilliant <laughs> casting. Uh, the elderly, <laughs> the elderly chinchilla, and the unflappable rock at the heart of the British Secret Service and Danger Mouse and Penfold's boss. Uh, Ed Garn uh, will be voicing the amphibious villain Baron Greenback. Additionally, uh, Shauna McDonald will voice Professor Squawk and Cluck, the niece of the original <laughs> Professor. She's oh, the niece of the... Nice. A quintessential, unflappable, for formal British lab assistant. Richard Osman plays a new regular character called Professor Strontium P. Jellyfishovich, 
the head of all the scientists on Earth, uh, a jellyfish in a motorised fish tank. He has no face, oh my God. but wears a pair of half eyeglasses on the front of his tank. He's a, he's a genius, <laughs> and he's also quite handy when it comes to a fight with his stinging tentacles. Oh my God. What, this what? is awesome. <laughs> Comedian and famed voice artist Dave Lamb will bring his uniquely sardonic wit to the series as the role of the narrator. Now, I don't know if you have a TV series in the States called Come Dine With Me. I know of it, but that's about it. Now, he does the voiceover on that, and he's very sarcastic. Uh, oh, good. The narrator, which was in the original was David Jason, was always very sarcastic. And it always used to start with the same words at the beginning of each episode. London. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, Stiletto, this is going to be wonderful. Sea <laughs> Baroni, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. Oh, um, I'm like a schoolgirl right now. This is just cool. Also joined in the cast are British Animation Awards Best Voice Performer winner, Morwena Banks, and Kaven Novak, who also is playing Brains in Thunderbirds. <laughs> <laughs> so, is this going to be like CGI? Is it going to be... I doubt it's going to be hand-drawn. Um, I mean, is it going to be like 3D? Is it going to be 2D? They haven't said a lot about it yet. Uh, oh, there has okay. been... I don't think there has been any images so far of what Danger Mouse is going to look like. There has been rumours that the, the eye patch that he's got is actually going to be some kind of bionic... <laughs> thing um i, I don't oh, know. okay danger mouse meets jordy laforge okay <laughs> it says here commenting on his new role as the world's smallest secret agent alexander armstrong which you probably won't know him but he is perfect for the role he is he is posh um mm -hmm. he, he likes playing like world war Two raf pilot type characters he's he's that kind of stiff upper lip old boy he's that kind of character so actually becoming Danger Which, Mouse would yeah, be... Yeah, that's Danger Mouse. Yeah, yeah. Commenting on his new role as the smallest secret agent, Alexander Armstrong said, as a lifelong, fa lifelong fan as Danger Mouse, I was ecstatic just to know that the show was coming back. To be actually <sighs> involved with the reboot and to be taking Danger Mouse out for a whole new generation is about as close to the dr uh, dream job as you could probably wish for. Kevin Eldon said about voicing Penfold, I'm absolutely delighted to be the new voice of Danger Mouse's trusty sidekick <laughs> Penfold. It's a role and not a mole. Penfold's not a mole, he's a hamster, and I'm really going to enjoy. <laughs> when I'm recording the episodes, I will be making sure that at all times my eyebrows are at least three inches above my head. <laughs> Oh, this is going to be so awesome. Uh, whilst Dave Lamb said it's an honour to be stepping into one of David Jason's shoes, Danger Mouse narrator is an iconic role, and I can't wait to get started. Talking about the new role that Richard Osman will be playing is, as a lifelong fan of the show, and slightly more recent, a fan of Alexander Armstrong, I could not be more delighted to be playing my own small part in this incredible new version of Danger Mouse. <laughs> So there's no actual oh, date, but it's coming this year, and um, that that better be coming to the states. It just <laughs> it better be. It's strange thing. It was on ITV when it firstly originally went out on air, and now it's gone over to the BBC. So um, it's 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 really strange. <laughs> but um, 
No, as soon as I saw that Alexander Armstrong was playing Danger Mouse, I thought, yeah, that's really good casting. And then I saw that Stephen Fry was Colonel K. That's great. Because he's going to be the same, like the, the general that he used to play in, uh, in the Blackadder <laughs> oh, series. Yeah. Wow, Stephen Fry. Wow, it must, I guess it's been a while since I've seen the Blackadder. I didn't even know he was in there. Yeah. Um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Um, you, uh, which ones have you seen of the, well, the, the general that, that sort of, stands at the back and lets everybody go out and gets killed basically he's the one that says um that's Stephen fry he's very pompous and yes, yeah and <laughs> well okay that's Stephen fry it works <laughs> but, but yeah, he's awesome so uh, he could put oh. his hand to anything i think um, I am just so pumped for this danger mouse i'm happy <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't believe it either when i first heard uh, that it was was coming about. The last thing I was going to say to you was, um, do you remember last month I said that I might uh, subscribe to th- 3D Create and Print magazine? Mm-hmm, yep. I've actually done it. <laughs> oh. So um, basically each issue is, is packed with uh, articles uh, about different worlds of, of 3D printing. There's tutorials in, on how to uh, draw 3D uh, to create your own things. It comes with a piece of software, which is quite easy to use. Um, it's What's the software called? It's called SketchUp Make. Um, so it's a kind of a CAD program. Um, isn't SketchUp Google's product? Yeah, I'm not, not 100% sure on that one. The, and you also get design files in there as well. Like there's a chess set... <laughs> And you get like two pieces each week that you can you can make, which you can't actually make until you've built the printer. Um, right. <laughs> uh, at the moment, I've only got three issues, and um, I haven't done anything with the parts yet um, until I get a few more parts to start putting it together. And what I'm thinking of doing is taking photographs of each step of the journey of building it, and I think I might uh, put a section up on the tgp nominal website so you can see how far i've got with the the building of it nice i, I thought that, that, might, that is that is one of the things i want to do as well but priorities kind of distinct <laughs> it's really interesting magazine there's not a lot of pages in it but there's um there's a lot more online content for you to to do things with and if i can start drawing to a degree that i can make an stl file uh, ready for when I've finished building it, um, that'll be great. So, um, yeah, that's uh, one of my projects now. <laughs> if you subscribe, you get a load of freebies with it as well. Um, obviously, you get binders to put the, the magazines in. Uh, right, There's right. A, a fit-for-purpose toolkit, so everything you'll need to, to build it with com- comes in the kit. Um, there's a, a 4 gig flash drive, for some reason, you get with it. Some rolls of PLA filament in a range of colours, so you've got some nice. some there already to start with. Ten exclusive 3D designs that will not feature in in the magazine. Yeah. And you so, also, so is this you actually? They're actually making you build your own 3D printer. Yep. Oh wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you deal with like the circuitry and the programming? Like obviously, it's got to have its own intelligence on board. Um, it's got some software that comes with it. The circuit boards are pretty much uh, the only thing is that it's it's all there connect them in there's, there's no soldering involved it's just cl- clicking to place 
Um, I might have to look into this myself. What I like about it is, is that you're learning other things as well as as building it. As uh, you're learning how to draw in 3D, you're learning about perspective, that kind of stuff. Keeps you up to date with of what's going on in the 3D printing world. Yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, read, as well as um, something to put together. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into this one. Uh, this is also something I can imagine. Kids getting into this one, making their own, you know, designing and making their own figurines and stuff. Yeah. Or just toys. Yeah, I, that'd be cool. The, the only thing I'd have to pay out for now is a scanner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, that's true. You need, what, you like a 3D scanner for that? Yeah. Uh, that's going to yeah. be expensive. <laughs> that would be expensive. Yeah, definitely. Spanhead Productions are a small, independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Well, I think that's about all we've got time for this month. Have you enjoyed your time in the Podosphere again, John? Absolutely. Next month, uh, all being well, we'll be bringing you our annual Yuri's Night special. So keep watching our Twitter feed for updates about that. One of the things I'm hoping to be including in it is, you know, I said to you, we, we have this TV show over here called Stargazing Live. It's usually in January. Um, but this year it's in March and I was trying to figure out why and then it dawned on me we've got this big eclipse coming <laughs> in, <laughs> in March and that might have something to do with it there you um, go. now the Letchworth and District Astronomy Society uh, are actually hosting a an eclipse meeting on the 20th of March when it actually takes place from 8 o'clock in the morning to about 11.30 in the morning um, so I'm going to be trying to get in touch with them beforehand and see if I can tag along and uh, talk with them a little bit about astronomy and about the eclipse and uh, report back for the show uh, along with other bits and pieces that I'm hoping to put together for the uh, for the Yuri's Night special Very good once again, it's been awesome having you on board, TGP Nominal, John. It's been wonderful to be back again. And um, I'll speak to you again soon. Sounds good. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of TGP Nominal. Just look for the relevant tab in the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to review us and give us a five-star rating. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of all our shows on the Awake Radio Group. You can find a link on our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the Donate button on any of the podcast pages, and don't forget to spread the word about us. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you all again soon. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.